Welcome to Breaking the Surface, where we break into a delicious beverage and also dive into the topic at hand. I'm one of your co-hosts, Taylor Kramer. I'm the owner and lead producer for Cold Shower Media. I'm Pat Milligan. I'm a journalist here in Traverse City. And I'm another friend. I am Anthony Weber, and I am a pastor and an ethics teacher, and I am something of a fashion icon when it comes to oversized sweaters. The point here is that we want to go beyond the talking points to get to the depths of what is happening in our world. It should also be said that this podcast is part of the Boardman Review Podcast Collective in collaboration with Culture Media. The Podcast Collective aims to provide unique content curated by the Boardman Review, the creative culture and outdoor lifestyle journal of Northern Michigan. Welcome, everybody, to episode seven of Breaking the Surface podcast. I am, as always, joined by Beth and Anthony. Um, but before we begin our conversation regarding education uh, through COVID and beyond COVID, I wanted to mention that today is, uh, as of this recording, is the one-year anniversary of George Floyd's um, murder. So I, I did prepare a little bit of a statement and this one is my own. It's not necessarily reflective of uh, Beth, Anthony, or the Boardman Review. Although you're certainly welcome if you agree with some of the things that I am about to say, you're welcome to tag along with it. But um, I want to say that my words are imperfect, but not as imperfect as saying nothing at all. Uh, Exactly one year removed from the murder of George Floyd by Officer Derek Chauvin. I want to continue to acknowledge his murder and the events that continue to unfold for people in the black community. George's murder was heartbreaking for many reasons, but the heartbreak didn't or hasn't stopped since he took his last breath. We have portions of the population saying, see what happened to him? That could be me next. And we have others whose eyes are now open to the injustices that still exist. This newfound awareness shouldn't have had to be spurred by the murder of George in broad daylight, but nevertheless, maybe the awareness can be used for good. And still, there are others who bristled at the murder of George, not because a man lost his life, but because they knew they would have to work overtime in their denial of the existence of injustice. For those people, I would ask you, I would beg you to err on the side of compassion, to try your best to understand that people of color do not point out racism because they get a kick out of seeing white people squirm, but because they are telling the truth of their existence in this country. All George wanted was his next breath and the one after that. Rest in peace to George Floyd. That's great. Well said. Um, So today's conversation, as as we get into it, we are discussing education and As I'm sure most people are aware, COVID drastically changed the landscape of education. I think in a lot of ways exposed um, some of the shortcomings in our education system. Now, what's interesting, and I think we'll talk about this, is that as the world starts to get more back to normal and maybe education will take the shape that it was previously in, some of those issues are still present. And so I'd like to, to just start this conversation off with, you know, what did, uh, what impact did COVID have on education? Uh, was there any positives to it in terms of how we move forward? And so wh- whichever one of you guys uh, would like to speak up first in terms of what you just thought of kind of the, the education system as a whole during this last year of a pandemic. 
Well, I want to kind of let Anthony take the lead because I, I wanted to talk about this topic today because I've covered education from a journalism standpoint for the last year. My sister also has four children and homeschooled um, three of them. The youngest isn't in school yet. And so I got to talk to her about her experiences and what they were going through and the decision to make that they made to pull their kids out of school. But Anthony is a school board member. He's a teacher. He's a parent who has kids in school. And so I was really interested to hear your perspective um, from those different kind of roles about what the last year was like. I feel like you kind of rolled out a trifecta of wisdom <laughs> that I'm about to offer. <laughs> uh, okay, I'll offer a perspective, but this will be limited. So just briefly, how COVID changed my interaction with education. I was teaching as an adjunct at Northwestern Michigan College, teaching an ethics class. And the format of the class was such that it relied heavily, heavily on student interaction. And the other part of the class was because we were talking about contemporary ethical dilemmas, and there's a lot of tension that can arise over those discussions, was learning how to navigate those tensions in person. So it wasn't just a discussion of topics. It was how to relate well to each other in the midst of discussing those topics, because as I'm sure you know, social media makes it so easy at a distance when there's a screen to just be jerks to people. Well, to move a class like that online puts you back behind screens and I, I actually asked if I could not have to teach this past year because I felt like it so altered the dynamics of the way I ran the class. And NMC was very gracious and allowed me not to teach this past year. I will start again this fall. So I personally avoided a lot of the headaches that I know other teachers were going through moving to virtual teaching. But I've talked to my other friends at NMC and then being on the board of the local school here, I'm well aware of the travails of the teachers there. It's been just a brutally difficult year for teachers. And so that's one thing we could talk about. The second thing to talk about is how are the students processing it? And then probably the third thing is parents. Mm -hmm. So I, I feel like I could run a monologue here for half an hour, but I don't want to do that. Is there something that strikes you as a, a topic to start with of those three? It is funny. I just want to mention, so um, in addition to being a journalist, I, I've gone back to college. So I'm taking classes online right now and they were, you know, online by necessity because of the pandemic. But I will continue to, I think, for the rest of my probably three or four semesters that are left because it's so convenient for me. Mm -hmm. But I am in an ethics class right now from with a different NMC teacher. Um, and it is funny. It's I'm enjoying it. I'm enjoying the format and the textbook that that this teacher selected. But it is interesting that the discussions are all in online forums and it, it's easy to default into. Now, thankfully, there's some class protocols. You know, mm -hmm. you can get kicked out of class for being a little too rambunctious on the, on the board. So people are pretty polite. But I have noticed I wonder what it'd be like to talk about something like abortion mm -hmm. versus a guy in a forum posting that he thinks it's okay if women die as long as their fetuses aren't aborted. And I was like, sir, allow me to have this conversation, <laughs> but it feels more like social or social media fighting when it's yeah. in uh -huh. that way. So I, 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 I do appreciate that perspective. Yeah. There's something about looking someone in the eye. I've noticed this in my class that students and, and many of them have very strong opinions, which is fine. They'll start to get wound up and they'll, you can see them looking around and they'll make eye contact with someone that they know disagrees with them. And they, you could see the wheels spinning as they're processing. I'm about to say something out loud as I look this person in the eye and there will be an immediate response from them. Do I want to do this? Mm -hmm. And it, it sure looks like it changes how people articulate their positions. It doesn't necessarily change their position, mm -hmm. but it turns out you're a lot more careful 
trying to not blow the room up, so to speak, mm-hmm. when there are real people in front of you and the emotions are present in the room, that dynamic is one that's just really hard to replace. I could see how with certain subjects that are much more of a clinical type of subject, okay, online probably is not going to make that much of a difference. But anytime you have a topic that requires emotional navigating as part of gaining wisdom about how to not only think about this issue, but talk about this issue, I, I just don't think you can replace that with online learning. Yeah, I think it it's interesting to discuss things like, you know, are you taking an online class that is an English class or are you taking an online class that is something where you're talking about ethics and issues that are happening in society and just the differences in that? I know for me personally, I would not have done very well with strictly online learning. Um, I think that I would have been more inclined to value what the teacher is saying if I'm there in person. And I probably... Uh, would have, you know, we're going to, I think, talk a lot about the struggles that teachers had this past year and maybe how they felt undervalued. And so it's sad to say, but I think if I were a student in today's um, system where, where a lot of things are online, I may have been one of those students that was contributing to a teacher not feeling valued. And it's sad to say, but I think it's the truth. It's just, it's not for me that online learning style wouldn't work, I don't think. Yeah. And I wonder, you know, you mentioned sort of the three pools of people kind of impacted students, teachers, and parents. And I think starting with how the pivot happened to virtual learning affects all three of those pools. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe that's a good one to start with because what I'm sort of seeing now is I think similar to the conversation we had in the last episode about like how entertainment might change or not, or where it might be still good to have screens and zoom and where it maybe mm-hmm. is not healthy. I think that might be true still for virtual education coming out of the pandemic where I think there were situations, certainly just going to the base element of keeping people safe virtual education was helpful (laughs) for that and trying to prevent um, classroom spread of COVID. I think though, one of the big things I'm taking away from education, and I thought this even since I was a school, a school student in high school, that we tend to have these really one size fits all models of a lot of education. I think there's starting to be more awareness of the need to like customize to different students. But like for me, when I was a student, Everything was tailored to some of the slower kids in the class, understandably. They don't want kids Mm -hmm. to be left behind. But that meant like other kids were on a different pace or maybe not didn't have as much attention paid. And maybe someone like Taylor wouldn't learn well online, but I really would. And it didn't seem like there was a lot of flexibility or diversity in the past in terms of options for students to to learn. Mm -hmm. And I think the pandemic showed that, wow, some students really are going to have a hard time with virtual learning. They're Mm -hmm. not getting the social element of the classroom. They're not getting the one-on-one instruction with a teacher. Um, Maybe they don't have um, parental support at home that's helping them answer their questions or they don't know how, they don't have internet. You know, there was just all these disparities in what people had access to. But I think other students might've done really well. And so I kind of wonder going forward if maybe it, it could be an option to at least have some flexibility with meeting different student needs. I don't know what you think about that as a parent or a teacher. (laughs) So with my teacher hat on, and now I'm going back to the years that I taught in high school. One of the issues that teachers faced this year was, let's say you had a, a class that was split, like a student is out because they were exposed to COVID. Uh, or let's just say you have a class of 25, three students are out. They've been exposed to COVID. So you have 22 in the building, three out. Okay. Do you live stream like a zoom teaching 
while you're teaching the class. That's going to be a little weird because if you walk around to ask questions or you move off of the screen, uh, you're going to go out of sight. Or if you're not right there by the computer, they're not going to be able to hear you. So you're trying to reach the, the class in the building and the three kids who are virtual. And then let's just say you you don't have to deal with that. You go, actually, I'll, I'll do a separate Zoom for them. Okay, now you've doubled your time that mm -hmm. you're teaching. And you might even be having to come up with like different curriculum things because the students in class, they might be working on projects together or you're able to answer something right there. You're functionally doubling your work. And that's the one thing I heard a lot from teachers this year was the chaos of COVID um, had to do, I think, as much with those mixed classes as it did mm. or like with the whole class would have to take a two week break. OK, you've moved everyone to Zoom. That's unwieldy but it's at least doable because it's one thing. But man, once you started doing the mixing, very, mm. very hard. It's almost like you have to have a pre-recorded curriculum that a student who is out could just watch the videos. But then you're also having to do a different set of grading and testing because they're not in the room. You're probably gonna end up going at a different speed with a live class versus what's recorded for a class. Like the complexities of that are, are crazy. So if you have a big school, let's say TC Central or West, you might be able to have the funds to bring in extra teachers and you have some teachers dedicated to helping students with online classes and other teachers who just focus on the classes that are in person. Once you get to smaller schools, like a class D school or private schools, you don't have the funding to be able to do that. And now you're almost in the position of asking your teachers to do impossible things. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't, I don't know what the solution to that is, honestly. Yeah. I felt like as a former social worker that I was relating quite a bit with the teachers. So if we talk about, you know, the people that are involved in this equation, which are the students, the teachers, and then the parents, I found myself kind of more relating with teachers the most. And I don't know if that's because there are kind of some overlaps in the skills that are needed to be a social worker and also a teacher. Um, but I, I, I also felt for them because there's a few positions in society and I think it could be social workers, it could be teachers, it could be nurses, um, maybe police officers, although I think police officers have a kind of a different level of power and more tools at their disposal in certain situations they come up against than what, you know, nurses, teachers, and social workers have, but it's where, um, maybe someone asked me, Taylor, what do you do? And I say social worker. And more often than not, I get the, Oh, you must have a big heart and you're not in it for the money. It's amazing how many people say that. And, um, and, and I call that kind of a veiled compliment veiled because they're right. I didn't choose to be a social worker for the money. I'm not stupid. Um, and also I, I do consider myself to have a big heart, but when, when you get that from the general public, like that type of response, it almost seems like they're looking for a reason to point to your big heart uh, and, and say, you must have an invincible heart, a heart that, that is mm. impervious to pain and you're expendable and we can throw you into any type of situation and you're going to figure it out. Mm. And I think that that's how teachers felt this past year is, you know, oh, you, you must've got into teaching because you care about your students. Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. I think that's why most teachers get into teaching, mm. but that doesn't mean that they need to be subjected to unfair treatment uh, hazardous work conditions, uh, or have to take on all these other responsibilities and wondering, am I safe to go to work? Well, their kids also 
aren't at daycare like they normally are and having to juggle all that stuff. And so I just, my heart went out to, to people like that because I've gotten, I think, similar treatment in my own career before. And I did, I noticed like the, the narrative really shift in the pandemic. So like at the beginning, we were sort of talking about how these different essential workers were, you know, heroic, whether it's our grocery store workers or restaurant workers or teachers, whatever it was and talking about like, man, this really illustrates how they're underpaid and undervalued. And maybe this will make everyone pay more attention to them and take them more seriously or give them what they're worth. And of course that didn't really happen. (laughs) Um, I mean, I know teachers in some situations, like I think teachers in the state of Michigan, like got a small like stipend during COVID, like an extra payment, but it was like $500. It's not like something that's really offsetting the risk or the extra workload that Anthony was describing. And what I am seeing now, and this is true of restaurant workers, it's true of grocery store workers. It's definitely true of teachers is I feel like the narrative shift from this sort of like hero worship to this sort of villainization where now teachers are blamed or seen as impediment from parents who want a return to the classroom or want mass to not be there or there or, or whatever it is that teachers sometimes don't even have any control over mm-hmm. or responsibility for they're either following their district's rules or the state rules, whatever it is. And it's like just how quickly we're able to lift people up artificially with no real support underneath it and then turn on them when they're not giving us what we want. Mm-hmm. Um, I just found really, um, uh, problematic. And I did look up some numbers and and found out how teacher retirement in Michigan increased 44% from August to February, this past August to February compared to 2019, 20, same time period. That's about 800 educators in the state. And the reasons that they were giving were things. It's not because of the wages. That was the third reason of those who were surveyed. It was because of stress and disappointment in their profession and then not enough wages and then too much risk. So you can't just pile on these people and expect them to do all this extra work um, take the health risk. They, like you mentioned, Taylor, they often have their own kids or family at home. So if you have a lot of young teachers, especially they're already struggling to figure out their own childcare. And am I going to bring something home from the classroom that gets my family sick? Um, they're not making a lot of money. And then on top of that, we're, you know, getting up at meetings and telling them, stop being cowards, go back to work yeah. with mm-hmm. restaurant workers right now. We're saying you're lazy. Everyone's trying to hire and no one will hire. It's like, why should they be expected to put their lives on the line for not uh, even a living wage. So going back to some things that are happening here with the schools and why teachers are frustrated, those top two reasons you gave, if I understand what central and West did correctly, or if I understand correctly, not, I'm not saying they did it correctly. <laughs> I think they probably did, but uh, when restrictions began to loosen in Michigan and schools were encouraged to go back to in-person, I, I believe they gave students the option. You can come back in person or you can stay virtual. And this had to do with a number of things. Number one, if enough students stayed virtual, their buses wouldn't be filled beyond capacity because they had to limit the amount of students on buses. And number two, your classrooms are going to be more empty and you can space students apart, creates a safer environment in the school. And I don't know what the mix was, but a fair number of students chose to remain virtual. Okay. I think it was at least 10% in TCAP, yeah, okay. but it might've been even more. Yeah. So, okay. Fair. In some ways, it seems like a really good solution. You can keep the school a little empty. Your kids are still getting in an education. The dilemma now is though, that all of the teachers who come back to work, 
they have 90% approximately of their students in person and 10% out. And to keep up with that 10% that it's out, if you think of a typical year where teachers have to accommodate kids who get sick from a cold or the flu, and it is not unusual that you have a kid out. Okay, you've got one student that you're sending an email to or whatever, making sure they're catching up for two or three days. What happens when you do this with 10% of your class for two weeks? And this might be an ongoing cycle. And so now if you have seven periods in the day, and let's just say you have two free periods, one's a study hall, one is a prep time, and you're spending those two periods catching up with the 10% of students who are not in the school, when are you doing all the work that you used to do during that time? Well, now you're doing it after school. You're doing it when you're at home. And now you're starting to feel frustrated as a teacher, like, I don't think I'm actually doing a good job in anything that I'm doing right now. That builds its own momentum. You're exhausted. This is why I think teachers unions were pushing to stay virtual. Mm. Not, Not so much because they were worried about their health, though I think that was part of it. I wonder how much more of it had to do with concerns about emotional and mental health, not because they're weak, but because it's a legit concern. It is a remarkable amount of work. Yeah. And I wonder, I mean, I wonder kind of, I think this pointed to this huge larger question of like, what is the purpose that schools are supposed to fill? Like, what is education supposed to do? Is it just that kids come and learn these like core skills or building blocks of things that they need to know about math and science and history and English? Or is it a place where they're getting childcare, where they're getting their food insecurity needs met, where they're getting social and emotional counseling? Like the school's Illust- I mean, just like other things we talked about in previous podcasts, the pandemic illustrated where our social safety nets are missing, you know, have big holes and the schools were definitely a part of it because kids are spending eight hours a day, you know, a third of their lives are sleeping the other third. So they're with their families or parents just as much as they're in the schools. And it raised all these questions of like not only getting these basic needs met, but like we're seeing in a whole separate conversation, like what kinds of things could, should kids be taught in school? We're having conversations right now in our local community about like anti-racism curriculum and like, did they learn about God? Did they learn about race? Like, did they learn about sex education? So I just thought like the pandemic to me really illustrated, like, what do we want schools to do? Or do we want them to be like second parents and families? And if so, like, are we giving them the resources to meet those needs? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's really interesting because schools are, prior to the light being shown upon these things and all the the extras that schools were providing. So we talk about food safety nets and, and like a form of childcare. These aren't things that schools are supposed to be doing, but now that we know that that's what they were doing all along, we're like, Oh, we need to make sure that they're, that they're still doing that while meeting all the requirements and, and, t- and getting high test scores for students. And, and there's so many new variables that have come into play. You know, you have, if it's online learning, Parents are trying to figure out how to respond to online learning, trying to get their kids set up on the computer, make sure they're attending class while they have to go to work. And then teachers are trying figure to figure out what work filters around. to put on their computers <laughs> yeah. while they're at work. Probably a yeah. cat filter. <laughs> I like the cat filter. And and then teachers are are having a bunch of new variables added in too, yet the expectations seem to have remained the same. So if we're talking about, you know, standardized testing and stuff like that. I I, I think that that was a huge issue is that we have these expectations and saying you, you need to still meet these expectations, even though the entire world is different right now. That reminds me, I'm going to make a prediction. We're going to find out that either this year or next year, there is a shift in how they score ACT and SAT and PSAT tests. Even if, yes, because this last year, 
as they have charted, like how much kids are retaining or how much they're not learning that a class normally would. I mean, education took a hit. Yeah. It would not surprise me to see those standardized tests um, graded on a curve, so to speak, for a year or two, mm. just to acknowledge that deficit. I don't know if that's happening or not, but it would not surprise me at all. The The tests change over time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This is not a secret. And this seems like an appropriate time to adjust it a little bit. I want to make a comment about what we expect schools to do, because I think that's an interesting one. Are they taking care of student health, um, giving them meals, socializing, et cetera? This is where I feel like the pandemic was experienced very differently in places in the country based on whether you lived in an area that was economically at risk mm-hmm. or an area that's very well off. I did student teaching in Dayton, Ohio, and that was a school where they had a lot of students that we would consider at risk in a lot of ways. And in some ways, when I talked with the teachers there, there, there were classes that were mostly what people would call babysitting classes. Mm-hmm very little education was done. And I talked with the teacher about it. And her comment to me was, she said, these kids are coming from home situations. You have no idea. Mm -hmm. We are giving them a safe place for the day. We are feeding them. So they're actually getting enough food to be able to even have the potential to learn and not have health issues. We are, and she went through this list of all the things the schools are providing that actually are beneficial to those students in that particular social or economic situation. That if you would go to Arlington Hills, I don't know, you'd find a very different scenario unfolding. Mm -hmm. And so I think just around the country, depending uh, where you live, your concern about schools being open or closed for the sake of kids is going to look very, very different. And I wonder if part of the challenge we have is learning how to look outside of our particular community and what it looks like for us and think, oh, we should extrapolate that to the rest of the United States versus going, no, I hear these stories. There's there's places where, and this is the tension, we've already talked about all the things with teachers, but there are crucial things that are happening for students with mm-hmm. in-person learning also. Yeah, it breaks my heart. I mean, I know there were definitely documented trends of the worsening of things like domestic abuse and household violence during the pandemic. Yeah. And to think of how many kids were essentially trapped at home with potentially abusive parents or situations like where you mentioned, at least when they're at school, they have a safe situation to get away from for the day. There's a counselor they can talk to. Yeah. Mm -hmm. There's, there's a guaranteed lunch, you know, and, and a lot of, I mean, I will say our school and a lot of, there was federal funding, even for kids who are virtual, we had um, food pickup days with TCAPs. There was money being poured into that. So I was glad to see that. But I think it did illustrate how much like you're talking about, Anthony, the schools fill all these different needs. And for me, the frustration, just like a lot of things in pandemic, it just showed that we're not I don't think this is my personal opinion. We're not funding the right things in this country. Mm-hmm. We're dumping, you know, so much money into things like the military or border walls or, and we can talk about the importance of some of those things, but we have clear needs of children who are, you know, essentials, food, um, care, protection from abuse, whatever it might be. We do not fund our teachers at our schools at a level to even provide adequate education. They're doing their best. And I think they're many of them are excellent educators. It's not their fault, but we're not giving them the resources to set them up to succeed. And then on top of that, you say you're also responsible for psychological development, <laughs> social development, um, 
food, whatever it is, they don't have nearly enough money to do that. They're just, they're trying to make it work. And many schools do it because they love the kids and that's what they're trying to do. But it really frustrates me to see that. And then to see people turn around and attack the schools or the teachers who are doing their damnedest to keep one's kids alive. And then two, having somewhat of a maintained educational level to get through to next year when hopefully things might be more normal. Yeah. Yeah. So it is really frustrating. And I think I got out of social work at the right time because I can't imagine. Is that any time? (laughs) Doing, doing the work I was doing remotely would have, I mean, there were times where I was teaching life skills classes for at risk homeless youth. And it was like, like you had spoken to each student is kind of at a different place. Like some students they're eating lunch at school and it's not just a meal to get them by until they can go home and, and have Tostitos or right. whatever. No, it's, it's a lifeline. And I've had kids and worked with kids where it's like, yes, I got them in the building just for this two hours. And now yep. I, I know where they are <laughs> now. Are they going to actually do anything in this class? No. And they're probably going to be a huge pain actually. Um, but, but I know they're here for two hours yeah. and then there's other students that would come in and it's like, okay, we need to excel while you're here because you are ready for the next thing. Mm. And we have certain positions. I'm going to keep mentioning it where we need them. We need social workers. We need teachers. We need nurses. Um, but what are we doing to actually make their lives a little bit easier so they can be more effective? There is no way around the fact that we need social workers. Social workers are improving people's lives in the present so those people can be more effective in the future. Teachers are doing a lot of the same things and nurses are actually helping to protect the community's physical health. And so if we talk about things like a pandemic where we are expecting incredible, incredible things and incredible workloads out of these nurses, okay, well, were we willing to do things to mitigate COVID? Were we willing to wear a mask? Were we willing to social distance so that we could lessen the load on nurses and make them that much more effective? And so we have to ask ourselves, what are what are comparable things for teachers that we can do right now to kind of help lessen their stress? Because you you had said stress was one of the main factors in them and them leaving the, the job. And what are those things that we can do to make their lives easier? Because. If we make their lives easier now, they're more effective teachers and that creates a brighter future. And I, I don't know why we have so much trouble in this country understanding how important edu- education is. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a great point, Taylor. And as you're talking, I'm thinking a way to honor teachers, because as a parent who has a student at school, I, I want them to be able to meet in person. But I want the teachers to be healthy because healthy people pass on health to people. And if teachers are not healthy, it's hard for them to pass on uh, health in the, in the sense that they're not at their best, right? So the ideal is that they're at their best. It's not like they can't overcome adversity. But a, a really practical way that I as a parent can answer the question, what can I do to help my teacher? Aside from, you know, you can give little gift cards and stuff. You know, <laughs> teachers like those little gestures. You put an apple, apple an on apple, their desk. Yeah. apple is the favorite. As you're screaming at them. Because <laughs> then they can, they can throw it at the kids who are sleeping. <laughs> yeah. um, but no, one of the best things I can do is tell my student, wear your mask hmm. so that the teacher does not get sick and so that your classmates don't get sick or you could potentially spread it and make your teacher's life harder because now she has to juggle students in class and out of class. That's probably one of the most supportive things I could have done was to tell my my student, my kid, follow the protocol for the sake of your teacher. Mm-hmm. 
Today we are drinking a salted caramel porter from Muskegon's own Pigeon Hill Brewing Company. What starts as a traditional porter takes a turn. Uh-oh. Once caramel and salt are added to this brew, the use of chocolate malt even gives it flavors of chocolate that remind you of a piece of candy. Okay, now when you say that, I feel like there are going to be people who are like, I do not want my beer to taste like candy. Yeah, or they don't, don't really like drink candy. sweet beers. I don't mind sweet beers. And I really like this one, actually. It does taste like salsa caramel to it me. It does. It's tasty. <laughs> when yeah. I first sip, I thought salt first, then kind of the chocolate and porter in the middle, and then a caramel taste that lingered at the end. Mm-hmm. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Salt goes so well with caramel and apparently it goes well with beer. And so I'm loving this. <laughs> Who knew? It's not like overly cloying, I would say, too, if folks want to give it a try. And you got it here locally. Mm-hmm. So if people want to find it, I think what you said, you got it in Gron? Yeah, I got it in Gron. There's a, a little party store right next to Rico's. And I wish I could remember the name of it to do them <laughs> justice. But they have a fantastic selection of Michigan beers. And this is the first time I have had this one. In fact, it might be the first time I've had anything from Pigeon Hill and Muskegon. And uh, based on this one, I'm going to keep trying some. So thank you, Pigeon Hill Brewing. Did you hear much from TC Christian where you're on the school board, right? How work has generally, was it easy to enforce masks in the classroom? Did you hear much about that or was that a struggle? I didn't, I was curious. Yeah. So let's talk about the student dynamic now. Okay. Well, we already are, but this is a new aspect. Sorry. And that's the mask wearing for students. The first point I would make is Parents were far more bothered that their students would have to wear a mask than the students were bothered that they Mm. would have to wear Mm. a mask. For most of the students, it was a big kind of, this is annoying, shrug of the shoulders, life goes on. It probably didn't hurt that in Michigan, they had to wear masks to wear sports. And listen, if you could wear a mask playing a basketball game, you can wear a mask sitting in a classroom. But there was also portions of the day carved out through most of the pandemic where students didn't have to wear masks when they're seated and listening. You know, if they're decently distanced, they didn't have to wear a mask. If they got together in groups at a table, they were supposed to, again, you didn't eat while you were wearing while you are eating lunch. Right. So there was already a rhythm throughout the day of not being able to wear a mask. The, the first point I want to make is the students did not seem that bothered by it to them. This is a weird thing. Uh, it'll pass. But the parents, let me tell you. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, I saw that with with the sports questions where we had uh, parents going to the Capitol and protesting against, you know, the seasons not being able to start or being shut down. And listen, I am a diehard sports fan. And I if you had taken away my basketball season in high school, I'm not kidding you. My mental health would have just absolutely tanked. I used to cry before games when they would get canceled because of snow. I wanted to play so bad that I would cry if our game got canceled as an 18 year old kid. That still so happens I when church gets that. canceled, right? Sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I was seeing these parents going and, and protesting at the Capitol and saying, we will do whatever you need us to do, Gretchen. Just, just allow us to play the game. And so then the governor would say, okay, we'll play basketball, but masks have to be worn. And then parents would be like, we cannot wear masks while we're playing basketball. I'm telling you, as a kid, I would have worn a suit of yeah. armor if I had to, to <laughs> play basketball. Yeah, yeah. The kids, they didn't like it, but they wanted to play basketball. Exactly. You're absolutely right. Yeah. And, and everybody was, it was a level playing field. That's the thing. Yep. To whatever degree masks were hindering their ability to breathe well, et cetera, everybody was experiencing it. So mm-hmm. it wasn't, it didn't create privilege, so to speak. Everybody was on the same page. And this for me raises like, it goes back to the issue of like, what is school for? Especially in the secondary level, like the, especially like the later high school grades, 
I see that same conversation you guys are talking about. I see this disconnect developing between the reality for kids and what they're interested in and what they're experiencing and what their parents think they're interested in or Mm -hmm. what they're experiencing or what their, what their educational experience should be. And for me, like one of the things maybe that I would come out of the pandemic with is like hoping, especially for those older students that maybe their voices carry more weight. So the two examples I would give of this would be one um, vaccinations. So I, you know, have interviewed and talked to and, and attended press conferences with high school students who some of whom got vaccinated, their parents didn't want them to get vaccinated. It's hard to sneak around and like get vaccinated without parental permission right now. But some of them had to like really put pressure on their parents and say, no, like, no, I, I want this. Um, you know, my sister has a 12 year old who's now eligible to get vaccinated. And she had a conversation with her and said, it's your body. Like, well, let's talk about what would you like oh, to yeah. do instead of just saying mm-hmm. you're going to do it or you're not going to do it. So just having some of that agency and in the same thing with like curriculum, you know, I was mentioning we've been having this local conversation here in our, our TCAPs, our main public school district, about anti-racism uh, curriculum in the classroom because of an incident that had happened here. And just last night I was covering a meeting in which parents were very upset and should have been at this meeting. And we're talking about their concerns, like this is some sort of indoctrination of having any kind of anti-racism curriculum. But then you talk to students and they're like, I, I want to learn about right. this. I, I know people are experienced. They're pretty wise. I mean, these kids are on social media. They see a lot of stuff that their parents probably don't know that they're seeing. They're aware of what's going on in the world. A lot of them want to be prepared for what they're yeah. going into or for college or understanding what like my friend has this face. I don't really faith. I don't really know what it means. So I I think, you know, there's different categories here. Curriculum is very different than like your health or vaccination protocols at a school or food or whatever. But I do see them as being related conversations about one, how education should work. And two, like how much is that dictated by parental input versus what students actually want and need versus, you know, industry standards of what educators know works. Mm -hmm. Like there's a lot of competing Mm -hmm. things there about what education should be, but there's really only pool one pool of people who are benefiting it from it, which are the students. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I feel like their voices are completely missing from the process. No, you're right. I think students on an issue like the one you just talked about with trying to address racism more pointedly in schools I think a lot of the kids do desire it. And frankly, if they would sit through a class where they're offended by something or think it's stupid, they're probably just going to shrug their shoulders and walk away from the class and and it'll just roll off of them. Right. I, I just think students, it, you'll notice it wasn't students at the meeting voicing their opinions. Mm-hmm. And I've noticed in my class that I teach at the college, I will often hear from students and they come from a variety of schools. Let's say, why didn't we talk about these kinds of things when we were in high school? This is a contemporary ethical dilemmas class. Why didn't we? Like they wanted to, they wanted to engage with these kind of things and have real and honest discussions about it. Yeah. yeah it's, I think it's incredibly unfair to the next wave of adults. We have, you know, if we're talking about 16 to 18 year olds or, or just high schoolers in general, they're the next wave of, of adults that are either entering the workforce or going off to college and, and starting to make decisions for themselves. I think we're doing them a disservice by not at least presenting them some of the this information and letting them sift through it. So if you talk about yeah. if there's a student in a class and they're talking about um, racism and this student is just it's not landing with them and they're offended by it, they can they can just close their ears and and walk away from that conversation or best case scenario, 
they they push back a little bit and then they can have a running dialogue with other students or with other teachers. And if that's not if there's not even an environment where that can happen, then we're kind of sending them out blind because these are real issues that are taking place in the world. They're issues that as we as adults sitting around the table, we're presented with every single day. And I think it would be really important and a disservice if we don't present them with some like practice opportunities while they're younger and the stakes aren't so high. And it would be allowing teachers to do the role that they're supposed to be doing, which is educating and facilitating conversations, sometimes around difficult topics and teaching kids how to think about difficult topics and how do you wrestle with something? You don't all have to agree, but how do you have conversations about it? Because going to this idea of like teachers filling all these roles One that I I was thinking of as we were talking that we didn't talk about is that they became janitors because they had to clean their desks and do, you know, PPE (laughs) stuff between classes. That's not what they're there for. They had to do that. But two, now they're like having to become attorneys because like, for example, TCAPs with this racist incident they had, they had a social media um, incident for people who aren't familiar in Traverse City where kids had created like a slave trade group and were like bidding on their classmates and posting really racist comments. It's a really horrible incident, a lot of community backlash. Um, But now like, instead of like, you know, the obvious way that you could start to address that stuff is directly in the classroom with engaging material that lets students have these conversations and teaches them how to think about it. We're having a lot of fear-based conversation around that about not wanting to indoctrinate our kids or not talk about it. So basically just shut up about this subject. But on the other hand, the teachers are expected to go through training to learn the difference between hate speech and free speech and when they should intervene in a student interaction Mm -hmm. so that they're not allowing bullying to take place in their classrooms. Like that's a lot to put on a teacher where, you know, a person of color, if their student is experiencing racism on the classroom, we hold the teachable teacher accountable for not intervening, but they're not allowed to have like a curriculum discussion about it. Like that seems completely backwards to me. It's just, I think it's, again, it's challenging. And it goes to like, if you were a teacher in that situation, filling all of those roles that we've talked about today, like, and you're making like 40, 50 mm-hmm. grand a year, maybe at the most, I don't know. Like, wouldn't it just be easy to say like, like one of the articles I was reading, the teacher was like, I'm just, I would rather be a barista at Starbucks. Yeah. Like mm-hmm. I really would at this point because this is too much. I'm going to add another role they have to play. And that was police when it comes to masks. Mm-hmm. So circling back to your question earlier. You have teachers who have to make a decision then, depending on what your school's policy is with mask wearing, which I think most schools tried to align with what the state or the local health department was recommending. Uh, You already mentioned attorneys. So what happens now if they have to police when they're walking the hallways, when they're in their class, when Bobby's face mask drops under his nose every 10 seconds, do you every 10 seconds say, Bobby, pull your face mask up? Mm -hmm. Okay, now you're not teaching anymore. You're giving... X percentage of your time to being a policeman and teachers don't want to do that either because they want to educate. Okay. So then do you hire other people to patrol the hallways? Do you suspend kids for not wearing a mask or give them deep tensions? Or you just plead with them to do the right thing and appeal to their hearts? I mean, it's, I don't know how all the schools handled it. And I was not in the building at the school where I'm on the board. So and I like the old days, you can't be out. like, Bobby, you idiot. <laughs> like You can't like do like the old school teaching yeah, methods yeah. where you're like a disciplinarian or you, you can't embarrass tape him. it to his face. Yeah, to like make a point because <laughs> you make Bobby cry and Bobby goes home and now you got a big problem with the parents if, you know, because Bobby's very protected and a special mm-hmm. angel from the Lord. And so if yeah. he doesn't wear his mask, like that's not his fault. I mean, I just cannot imagine all the yeah. dynamics that teachers well, have I, to deal with. I, I, I struggle and I'm sure there's things that are right in front of my face and I am disconnected from still, even though they're just staring right at me. 
But I struggle to understand why there's not empathy for teachers in some of these instances. Like I'm thinking of my sister-in-law. So my sister-in-law is an attorney in California and she has had to have her four-year-old son home while maintaining a similar workload as to when she could go into the office and his childcare was available. And so it would be hard for me, and she is not this type of person, but if she was someone that was complaining about teachers and their approach and their response to the pandemic, it would be one of those things where it'd be like, you are now an attorney who is also providing childcare at the same time. So why do you not have the empathy for people that are having to take on multiple roles? Like we said, police, attorney, uh, teacher, trying to accomplish all these goals while having added roles. And so I, that's hard for me to understand is why we can't be empathetic to, to people that are serving the community and sometimes in ways that they weren't having to before there's just at an added workload onto the things we already expect from them. Yeah. Because I think the answer is the first part of your question, which is just for the whole pandemic, why can't we be empathetic? Stop <laughs> of, of anything, of anyone's circumstances being different yeah. than our own. It, we seem almost incapable of doing it. And then you couple that with a sense of entitlement. And then really each person, the priority just becomes this narrow sort of circle right in front of you of like, are my needs being met? Is my kid in the right place at the right time? Is he complaining to me about something? And do I have food on the table? Can I get to my remote work? Can I get all my stuff done? And it's just like here. And some of that I think is forgivable because it is a pandemic and we are sort of in this crisis mode where we're all trying to survive and dealing with a lot of emotional and physical stress. But I think it's very important to remember that everyone else is dealing with that too. Yeah. And when it comes to people who are making great sacrifices to take care of your children eight hours a day, whether virtually or in the classroom, I do think that merits a special level of compassion and hopefully long-term a more funding for both the faculty and for the schools. Maybe we should be trying just as hard to understand other people as we want them to understand us. I feel like just, there's some version maybe. of that I've heard before. Yeah. Let's call it a rule, <laughs> like a silver rule. I don't know. Yeah. Okay. So let's go to the third pool okay. parents. Yeah. So I'll weigh in briefly with my thoughts as a parent, and then tag in. Our youngest son is almost 16 years old. So when he had to do virtual school, he was pretty self-sufficient. Had he been younger, especially our youngest son, when he was young, <laughs> he was a, he was a handful. Uh, okay. Either my wife or I am having to reorganize our work schedule so that we are home with him. And then the younger he gets, the less likely he is to engage on any kind of virtual thing. And that means we're probably having a lot of stuff sent to us by a teacher. And so now we're teaching which I get it. It's a, it's a pandemic. Everybody has to adjust, but from a parent's perspective, I would say the younger your kids are or the worse your kids are without supervision, it is really disruptive when schools get canceled. And like our church partners with an organization here in town called single mom. And when schools went virtual, who it was close to disastrous for their clientele, mm. because what were they supposed to do? Especially if they didn't already have their kids in daycare or if their kids were daycare age, maybe that was okay. But then daycares closed for a while, I think. Yeah, they didn't. Yeah. So they're the only income. The, the mom is the only income in the home. And now they're either putting that income right into babysitting, which is disastrous for a budget, or they're having to stop working, which is disastrous for a budget. Mm. And so that ripple effect is huge. 
And so I wonder what kind of policy ideas will come out of this and prep for something else that'll happen because something else will happen. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, we're going to get bad strains of something again. And I don't know what kind of social safety net that is because any solution that puts a whole bunch of people together in a room <laughs> seems to be counterproductive. Mm -hmm. But what do you do? Uh, so I am really sympathetic to parents especially with younger kids. My wife and I were fortunate that our schedules were not disrupted that much, but I know for others, it was almost catastrophic. I mean, I think it goes to show that again, going back to the social safety net thing that we have a huge childcare problem yes. in this country. Um, and it does make it difficult for people to work and childcare is often provided by the schools. It's like an essential reason. And it's part of the reason <laughs> there's so much pressure on the schools to reopen or, you know, teachers getting yelled at to like, don't be cowards, go back to the classroom because they need their kids to be there. It's really hard. And on that front, I sympathize. Um, I wish that they had better options. They just don't in our country. I'm not a parent and I've learned that people don't think it's appropriate that I say I'm a cat parent. So um, they don't find <laughs> do the comparison. Chicken, at what point do your chickens count? <laughs> yeah, they don't find the comparison uh, very helpful. But I am an aunt and my sister, who you both know, um, they have four kids. And so I did ask her before this podcast about her experience. I would have loved to have her on, but when you have four kids, it's hard to just go do a podcast <laughs> taping. I've also learned. Um, <laughs> and so they, their kids actually go to TC Christian normally where, where Anthony's a school board member. And um, so they pulled their, they made the decision to homeschool their kids for a year. So they, the kids, the girls would have been in seventh and third grades. Um, Maddie would have been in kindergarten. And then Teddy, who's the youngest would have been preschool and he is immunocompromised. Mm -hmm. So that made, made a, that was the decision point for them was one, my sister said they wanted the kids to have school stability yep. and she felt like homeschooling them all year was actually more stable than the yo-yoing of virtual in the classroom back and forth. And there was yo-yoing. And there was a lot of yo-yoing, not just a TC Christian, but all the schools. Yeah. Yep. Um, so a lot of that. And then they, they were also legitimately, you have to remember how the pandemic medical knowledge evolved. They didn't know if the kids would bring something home to Teddy and they didn't yeah. know how COVID would affect him because he has a lung condition. So that was that. Um, she did talk about some of the challenges. You know, she was going to school full time. Mm -hmm. um, her husband was working. So they were juggling trying to do college and their own work and homeschool the kids. Um, the thing I took away from my conversation with her, which I think is a good way to start to wrap up of just thinking like where we go from here is she said, I think this is going to be a wash year for everyone. Yeah. <laughs> She's like, I think it's a wash year for the kids. We did our best in homeschooling to make sure like there were certain topics like math mm -hmm. that we got the basics rooted in. So they're not going to be behind their classmates when they go back next year. She's like, we did a couple hours of school each morning. Then we did, you know, more experiential stuff, going out, outdoor works, that kind of thing in the afternoon. But she's like, I think they're fine. I don't think they felt like super behind academically or socially. They had the church, they had people up, you know, pods. But she's like, I just think everyone is going to have a wash year. And when we go back to school in the fall, it sounds like her kids will go back to TC Christian in the mm -hmm. fall. Um, it's, she's like, I think they're going to be in the same, um, you know, sort of mess that their classmates are in who were in school, which is just like, people are going to be behind in stuff. Yeah. They're going to still be struggling probably in the fall with like vaccination and masking and social distancing and like what's okay and what's not. I don't think it's going to be totally normal September 1st, you know? So, and I think that's true for everybody in 2020. Yep. 2020 is kind of a wash. It, it sucked. Yeah. <laughs> it was hard. And maybe like, that's okay. So I'm just curious, Anthony, and I'd love to get your thoughts too, Taylor, but especially from the educator perspective, like, 
you mentioned the adjusting of the SAT and ACT, which I think would be great. But like, do you think that it's realistic and can the school system adapt and just understand it was a wash and we're probably going to have some catching up to do? Yeah, I think so. I think what's going to be hard is in the curriculum subjects that build on each other year to year. Mm -hmm. Math is a great example because you plan to start a school year with the assumption that students prior have this amount of information in place to build on. When you have standalone units, like I was an English teacher, so you might, you had American lit one year, British lit the other year. Okay. If COVID hits during American lit and you only get through three quarters of your curriculum, whatever, British lit's a brand new start. You don't Mm -hmm. need to build on it. Mm -hmm. So to the extent that classes do that, I think it'll be fine, but it's, you know, Spanish, it's math, it's, I don't know what all the other classes are because I only taught English for the most part. <laughs> uh, those ones that build, I, next year is going to be tough because you're probably going to have to take a portion of your year to go back and either finish something or make sure it's all in place. Well, now that shortens the upcoming year for your regularly scheduled curriculum. So I have a feeling it's going to be a, a ripple effect of a couple years to get things back to normal for those kinds of classes. And I haven't seen like the end of year stuff, but like, I'll be interested to see like what graduation rates look like this year, you know, at the end of the semester, especially, I don't know, this is probably different from when I went to school, Anthony, but I don't know how your school does it, but I know TCAPs used to like, you could fail classes if you had a certain amount of absences, like unexcused absences. I don't know if that's I'm not sure. Oh yeah. So there used to be a problem before where your credits could be jeopardized if you had like 10 unexcused absences, which I did all the time. (laughs) Um, So like things like that. And I I definitely heard from the school system that a big problem they had was just kids stop showing up for virtual classes. Mm -hmm. And they were just like, are they okay at home? Like, we don't know what's going on. They're just not in their zoom classes. So like that kind of stuff, not only like, what did we learn, but like, did we actually get our credits? Did we finish what we needed to graduate? Like I haven't seen those numbers yet, but I'm curious. That's maybe the advantage. One of the advantages of being a smaller school is that it's a little easier to keep track of the students. Sure. When you get a big school with thousands of kids, it's a lot harder. And uh, we were able to, I know TCAPs in the West in particular, were careful about really getting students to come back to in-person. They always had that option. I think most smaller schools did not offer that virtual option the expectation was if we open for in-person, you were there. So that also gives some more accountability. Yeah. And I think for me, uh, maybe again, because I was a social worker, I have an interest in mental health and I've worked with people on their mental health in various capacities. And I think that one positive might be this focus that has been brought upon the mental health of teachers and also students. Um, Mental health is one of those things that if it's, it can be, it can be um, pushed and you can, you can find success maybe in the moment. You can break past some mental health issues that you're having in the moment. Be like, all right, so I sucked it up long enough to pass this test or I sucked it up long enough to get through that shift at work. Um, but it almost always builds and builds and builds and ends up culminating in, in something disastrous in someone's personal life later down the line. And I think how we prevent some of those things is if we can just keep a focus on student and teacher's mental health uh, throughout their day. So that we can understand, okay, so this teacher is struggling with some some stress and anxiety that was brought on by the job. How do we treat it in the moment rather than just pushing it off to the side, which is going to lead to something catastrophic? And the same for a student. Um, How can we treat their mental health and make sure that they're getting the care that they need on a daily basis so that maybe it doesn't culminate in them just dropping out of school altogether when it just becomes too much to bear? And so I hope that there are some things, as we've seen a light uh, shown upon 
people's mental health, I think overall as a society and, and the importance of mental health and, and checking in with yourself. I hope that that does continue because I think that that's going to lead to an overall healthier society. So I wonder, and I, I know we're wrapping up, so maybe this will be close to a final thought. You I don't always think I've ever claimed the final thought before. You did no, last time. I did, I, yeah. did I last Anthony, time? you're always doing the final thought. Uh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> no, no, no. I want to hear this it. This will be the <laughs> second to final thought, and one of you will finish. <laughs> I think in the normal course of life, we tend to have experiences of stress that kind of come in surges. And so you might be overwhelmed for a bit, but then you have room to step back and rest and relax and recover. You're kind of ready for the next one. I think this last year has just been the surge mm -hmm. and there's, there's a collective trauma that goes with that. So that's teachers, that's students, that's parents, that's you tick through the list. It's everybody. And I think one of the most important things we can do right now is just, just be kind. Mm -hmm. I th you actually, uh, that was going to be my final thought. So you wrapped up really well. <laughs> I was just going to, what both of you said really resonated with me. And I, I think it's a great way to end, which is like, yes, I think, I think we're only beginning. I think I've mentioned this in previous podcasts, but I think we're only beginning to like process what has happened to all of us in the last 14 months. And I know that because like, as things are starting to open up here in Michigan, I've gone like maskless to the grocery store for the first time in a year and a half. almost. <gasps> I know I'm scandalous. Um, and I felt super weird and psych psychologically unready for it. I felt scared. It's weird when people try to shake my hand. I'm like, I don't want to give you a handshake. You Just might slap it away. <laughs> yeah, like, no bad. Um, it's it's weird for me to like hang out inside at parties for a long time. Like there's just all these things and we've talked to, we've hit on it before, but it's because like Anthony said, we've just had 14 months of unrelenting stress and I don't, and we're already kind of a society that's not super great at handling <laughs> mental health as, as Taylor has touched on and knows from his personal experience and his work. So yes, that was going to be what I hoped for is like, whether it's for students, parents, teachers, but for all of us really to have some grace as we start to transition, hopefully out of the pandemic, because what will follow that huge surge is the time of rest and recovery. And we need to figure out how to be with each other again and sort of like, what is our normal going to look like yeah. together? Hey, that's a great wrap up. So Beth, apparently you got the final word. Yeah. Okay. Um, great so job. for the record, I did not get the final word. So next time. And I just stole Anthony. So yeah. <laughs> well, we appreciate you guys uh, for listening to this episode. We'll keep them coming.